Good evening. Good to see you tonight. We're glad that you're here. If you have your Bibles, would you be turning to the book of Psalms, Psalm chapter 1. We're going to talk about happiness tonight and how to be happy and how you cannot be happy. Trust that you are happy. I hope that you are if you're a Christian because this man is. There is much to be said before we get to the psalm, and so by way of introduction, let me say some of those things. Psalm 1 sets the stage for the rest of the book. The other 149 psalms will support and reiterate the things that are found in this one psalm. The psalm is conveniently divided into two parts. There are six verses. The first three verses talk about the blessed man. The second three verses talk about the wicked man. One of these men will be happy, and the other will never find happiness here on this earth or eternally. The outline of the psalm, we would divide it as who is blessed, why is he blessed, and the result of his life. That would be the blessed man. The second half would be who is not blessed, the failure of wickedness or ungodliness, and ultimately the just judgment of God. The psalm has three groups within it. Excluding angels, they're always the same three groups. There is the righteous, there is the wicked, and there's God. And that's it. And that's all there will ever be. The psalm centers around the life, choices, and consequences of the righteous and the wicked as they live their lives out here on this earth. And it ultimately points to the fact that God is the final arbiter. He is the one who will judge and determine what these individuals have done with their lives. The psalm addresses every human being's desire, and that is to be happy. Every generation wants it. Every person within every generation wants it. We want to be happy. And just so we're clear, we're not talking about the happiness that's fleeting, the kind of happiness that you get when you get a new toy, you get a new gift, you your football team wins or you get an award, not that happiness. That's not what's being discussed. Everybody will have that in one respect or another just by living and being stimulated by life. You will have happiness if that is what you're seeking. But that's not what's under discussion. Scripture has the idea behind it with regards to happiness of being something sustained. Not so much a gift per se, but something you are. In fact, that's the way this man will be described. It is a psalm of contrast. Who is happy, who is not happy? Why one person is happy and why the other person is not happy? And I keep saying why he's not happy. I mean by that why he'll never be happy. The choices that this individual makes will never lead to happiness. It simply will never get there what the results are of their lives, and again, the fact that God will judge. Let me offer a few more notes before we get to the Psalms. Let me ask a few questions. Here is the reality. We live our beliefs. That's what we do. I don't mean that in relationship to those of us inside of the building tonight. I mean that is a human construct. We live what we believe. And so we ask, do I believe God? That really is the question. Because if I believe God, I'm going to live out my belief. Do I believe 
the Bible is God's Word. In fact, I would urge it is always and nearly only those two thoughts before we go any further in any direction. Do I believe God? Do I believe His Word? Because that's going to furnish then, when God says something, I already know my position on that. When God says something, I already know what I'm going to do in relationship to that. Now, why do I know what I'm going to do? Because I believe God and I believe the Scripture. Conversely, if I do not believe God and if I do not believe the Scripture, I also know what I'm going to do. I'm not going to live according to Scripture. I'm not going to follow after God's instructions. I'm not going to do that. The results of these two choices are very different. The paths that they will take, very different. We should note there are no exceptions here. There aren't any exceptions. Every generation struggles with that. They believe that despite what God says, despite what Scripture teaches, there is a way around it. The reality is there aren't any exceptions. If God said you reap what you sow, then you'll reap what you sow. There aren't any exceptions to that. None of us are the exception. This is what makes it futile and foolish to live something other than what God says while trying to find the very thing God said you cannot have if you make that choice. If you choose to live without Him, you can't have happiness. This is the reason I point out what we're not talking about. We're not talking about temporary joy. Can you get that? Absolutely. You can buy a new gift too. You can have a birthday party too. Can you get that? Absolutely. But you're not looking for that. Generations come and go, Psalm, uh, um, Solomon said. They're not looking for temporal happiness in toys and gifts. No, they're looking for meaning, fulfillment, satisfaction, belonging. They're looking for understanding. They're looking for something much deeper. That you can never have apart from God. He's going to make that clear. If you will, imagine two groups of items, two piles. Imagine walking up to those two piles and you're looking for happiness. And one of the piles has the thing you're looking for. It has the meaning. It has the fulfillment. Now imagine if it were possible for God to tell you which one. If God could say, it's in that pile, and you believe God, and you believe His Word, and there are only two piles, and God said it's in that one, which one would you look in? You know it would seem rather foolish to say, I believe God, I believe His Word, but I'm not going to look in that pile. No, I know He said happiness is there, but I tell you, I'm going to find it here. You see, that would be foolish. Now imagine two roads, two ways, two diverging paths, and there you stand at the fork in the road, and one of those paths, one of those ways will lead to happiness. If you take this one, it'll lead to happiness. Now imagine if it were possible for God to meet you there. And for God to say, oh, you're looking for happiness? It's that way. Now, there you stand at the fork of the road, but you've already said, I believe God. I believe His Word. And if God said it's that way, why in the world would I go that way looking for happiness when it's not there? He's clearly told me it's this way. Imagine if you could that there were two counselors. You need to find the information for happiness. You're on the search to find it. And one of those counselors is God, and God is saying, oh, happiness, that's what you're looking for. Meaning, fulfillment, lasting, that's what you're looking for. I can tell you exactly how to get it. You do this, 
And the other counselor is a human being just like you. The two of you put your heads together and you say, well, I know God said it, but I tell you, I think if we think hard enough, work hard enough, we can figure it out in this other direction. That's the song. That's what's happening. Happiness is somewhere. Happiness is in something. Happiness is a path. Happiness is some counsel. Happiness is available to be found. And God is doing the talking. And God is saying, here it is. Here's where it's not. Let's get into the psalm. Who is it that's blessed? The psalm opens verse number one. The first portion of the verse says, blessed is the man. The reason that's important is because exactly what we've talked about already, the person is blessed. We could just as well read that, blessed is the man or the man is blessed. Who does what? Well, this is not about receiving a gift. This is not something that's given to him. This is something he is. You find this man on Monday, he's blessed. Tuesday, he's blessed. Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, all week, all month, all year, he's blessed. What about the circumstances of his life? Has no bearing. How do you know the Apostle Paul is blessed in prison? Acts chapter 16, verse 25. How do you know he's blessed? Brethren, things that happened unto me have happened to the furtherance of the gospel. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Paul, they haven't gotten to you? No, I'm blessed. Where? In prison. The circumstances of this man's life does not matter. What if you're rich? Paul says, I've learned how to be abound. I've learned how to be a base. What if you're poor? I'm blessed. This is who he is. That's what we're looking for. We're looking for every day I wake up, I'm blessed. That's what we're looking for. We're looking for meaning and fulfillment. What about the circumstances? It has no bearing on this man. The man is blessed. The mistake of every generation is to believe that it's something that's going to make me blessed. That there is something out there, I just have to get my hands on it. And when I get it, then I'm going to be happy. I'm not happy yet. I'm searching. But when I find it, well, what is it? If you have your Bibles, hold your finger here. Turn over to the book of Ecclesiastes. Notice with me chapter 2. The book of Ecclesiastes is just this. <laughs> it is a man looking for meaning, fulfillment, happiness under the sun. He lives on this planet. He's under the sun, 93 million miles away. That's where he's searching. And he's trying to find that thing. Every generation goes through this very act. In fact, there are some in the very process of this right now. Believing, I don't have it yet, but it's right around the corner, and as soon as I get my hands on it, I will be happy. There has been, likely, in human history, no person better suited to find it than Solomon. And Solomon found much, but he didn't find it. What are some of the things he tried? Chapter 2, let's start reading. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure. There it is. You know, that's really all it is. If I just get enough pleasure, I'll be happy. So enjoy yourself. And behold, it too was futility. Here's a man that had 700 wives and 300 concubines. If it were a matter of pleasure, Solomon says, I'd have found it. Not there, though. It was futility. Did he try it? Absolutely. In fact, he says in verse number two, I said of laughter is not madness and of pleasure. What does it accomplish? 
I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely and how to take hold of folly until I could see what good there is for the sons of men to do under the heaven the few years of their lives. If it were in that, Solomon says, I would have found it. What does the world tell us? It's in pleasure. What do we try to do? We try to find it. But keep going. Solomon tried something else. He says in verse number four, I enlarged my works. I built houses for myself. I planted me vineyards for myself. Tried that. What do we need? Possessions. They just need more stuff. If I get enough possessions, if I get enough stuff, I will be happy. Solomon had stuff. In fact, you'll notice that all of these words are plural. I made gardens and parks for myself. I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. I brought male and female slaves, and I had home-born slaves. Also, I possessed flocks and herds together than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. Also, I collected my silver, gold, and the treasure of the kings. Surely this man is happy. After all, that's what we're looking for. Every generation does the exact same thing. He says that in chapter 1. One generation comes, another goes, and the world continues. And you know what every generation does. It comes here looking for happiness. You know what it tries? Pleasure. Got to find it. That's going to do it. Turns out that's not it. So we move to money, possessions. We got to get stuff. And the more we get, the happier we'll be. Solomon said, I did it too. I collected silver and gold. He already has houses and vineyards and, and slaves and all of these things. He says, I collected it all. Then he says, I had power and prestige. Verse number nine. Then I became great. I don't know who said it. They said, if it's, if it's true, it's not bragging. It's not bragging if it's true. Solomon said, I'm great, and he is not wrong. You tell me the metric, and I'll tell you Solomon was great. What do you call great? Solomon had wisdom. Great. In fact, wisest man on the earth. Solomon had riches. Great. Riches than any other king that ever lived before him. Solomon had power. He was the king of the nation. There is no law above Solomon. He's it. And so when he says, I became great, He's not kidding. In every metric, Solomon is great. He says, greater than I increased more than all them who were before me. Also, he says, my wisdom also stood by me. In verse number 10, Solomon says, well, few human beings will ever be able to say, all that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. This is not a man who window shopped. He bought the window. He bought the store. He bought everything. He says, if my eyes laid on it and I wanted it, give it to me. Wrap it up, I'll take it. Not to mention the fact that other people bought him money. It's not just his own money. Other nations bought him money. You should read 1 Kings and listen to the amount of things that was given to Solomon. Already rich. If my eyes saw it, I had it. Surely, if it's here and if it's in a thing, Solomon has to be the happiest man in the world. And he is as far away from happiness as any human being can be. You don't have to take my word for it. Just look at verse number 10. He continues by saying, I did not withhold from my heart any pleasure, for my heart was pleased because of all the labor that was my reward for all my labor. Then I considered all of my activities which my hands had done in labor which I had exerted, and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was no profit under the sun. He says more. Slide down to verse 17. Solomon says, so I hated life. For the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me, because everything is futility and striving after the wind. 
Notice verse 18. Then I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun, for I must leave it to a man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. Yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor, which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. This too is vanity. Therefore, I completely despaired of all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. What? That Solomon is right. How is it? that we live in arguably, if not, the richest country in the world with nearly everybody having all the things Solomon just said he had, and don't we reach the same conclusion? Every day, what's wrong in the world? There's nobody happy. Nobody has any joy. Richest nation on the earth and the most miserable people. Why? Solomon's not wrong. You can't find it here. It's not in a thing. Let me ask again, do you believe God? Do you believe the Scripture? Do you believe Solomon? This man is blessed. Why and how? Why is he blessed? The second half of verse number one says he is blessed because of what he rejects. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the wicked. What makes a person blessed like this? It's who he listens to. It's what he's taught. It's the walk he takes through life. It's the way the Bible describes the motion of our lives. That motion is a walk through life. And that motion is determined by the messages we receive and believe. Why is this man happy? There are three postures that will be talked about in these first verses. He will not walk, he will not stand, and he will not sit. He does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or the ungodly. To walk into something is to direct your life according to that. Remember, we live our beliefs. If there is counsel, that means there's a counselor. There is messages that are received, information is believed. And this information, once heard and believed, is lived out. This man knows that. And there are wicked people in his day trying to counsel him, and he says, I will not walk in that counsel. The first step leads to the last step. This is one of the reasons the Bible emphasizes so much our heart, so much our mind, and why Proverbs 4.23 will direct, guard your heart with all diligence, for out of it flows the issues of life. This man is blessed. Why? He does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Here is God standing at the fork of the road saying, it's not that way. Why do God's children take counsel from wicked people who oppose God? This man won't. And then they try to find happiness. The wicked has a worldview. The wicked has counsel on how to live and how to find happiness. They believe they know too. And so they give counsel for people. You want to be happy? The atheists will teach God's children about God. And some Christians listen to atheists. And the atheists tell people how we got here and how to live life and how to rear children. You know, for atheists, since there is no, no, no God in their estimation, then when it comes to rearing children, they observe the rhesus monkeys. 
and they watch monkeys. And then they say, well, we can learn a lot from our former ancestors, and so we're going to do it that way. That's counsel. You want to know how to hear children? Well, the atheists will tell you how to do that. How to have a happy man? Atheists will tell you how to do that. Parenting, counsel, they'll tell you that. The evolutionist will tell God's children about origins. It's amazing. Evolutionists will say, no, he didn't create the world. God said he did. But evolution will say, no, sit billions and billions of years. And then as a result of listening to them, some of God's children struggle to be able to count to six. It's six days. It's not billions of years. One says six, one says billions of years. The atheist in evolution says God didn't make the world. A big bane exploded, and that's how it got here. And God didn't make you. And that's what they say. That's counsel. God says, I made you in my image. They say, no, you evolved from a primordial soup through apes and eventually down to humans. Speaking of humans, the humanist has counsel. We teach God's children about human nature. God will say he made man upright. God will say he made man in his image. God will say, I crowned you with glory and honor. Humanists will say, there is no God. You're a God. There is no meaning to life. You're an animal. Nothing sacred about your life. You're like an ant, a bug, or a cow. No different. You know those two roads that I talked about? There's somebody standing at the road telling you it's this way, and this is the counsel they receive. This is the counsel they give. This man is blessed because he won't listen to it. No, I'm not walking that world. I don't walk in the counsel. Fornicators teaching God's children about sexuality. God says he made them male and female. They say, oh, no, a thousand times no. God said marriage is honorable and all. They say you don't even have to get married. Sleep with whoever you want to. Divorce if you want to. Have sex with anybody you want to anytime. That's what they say. There's a road. There's a path. There's a walk to that. And if you walk that path, what God is saying, you will never find happiness there. It's not down there. This man is blessed. Why is he happy? Wakes up every day. And the wicked cannot counsel him. But he goes further because he says he does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly and he does not stand in the way of sinners. Since he does not walk in their counsel, he never has to worry about standing in their company. But many of, many of God's children struggle. This is why they are listening to these people, they are listening to their counsel. And as a result of that, they follow what they say, and then they go try to live it out. They're now walking in their counsel and standing in their company. This is another mistake that every generation makes. Every generation comes here believing, well, I'm going to listen to it, but it won't affect me. I mean, I hear what they're saying, and I'm going to do a little of it, but it won't change me. Effectively, it goes like this. I'm going to hold on to them, and I'm going to hold on to God, and I'm going to take both of the counsels, and I'm going to work them into—you know, the Bible just doesn't talk like that. It really is an either-or proposition. Paul says, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed. It's either conformed or transformed, but it's no combination of the two. Jesus said, he that is with me is not with me, is against me. But there's no, 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 nothing comparing them and bringing them together. The company we keep will improve or hurt us. That's just the reality. And we keep company by listening to counsel. 
And pretty soon that counsel affects our thinking. And it's not long before we're thinking the same way as the counsel we've received. Proverbs 13, 20 says, He who walks with wise men will be wise, but a companion of fools will be destroyed. 1 Corinthians 15, 33 warns, Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupts good morals. This man is blessed. You and I sometimes don't even realize it's already happening. You know, you hear things like this, and I can only imagine what may or may not be going through your mind. I mean, you may be wrestling with me right now. You may be saying, well, Eric, I hear what you're saying. I can even see the two paths. I got you with the counsel. But listen, it's not doing that to me. Chances are real good. It already has. Chances are good. The popular people give us counsel. How? Well, you check the way we listen to information. It is a variety of ways we can receive information, and every one of those ways has some counsel. What do they do? Well, they tell us things. They write new songs. They act in certain ways, and they give us information. And the next thing you know, a challenge is available. Who does the challenge? It's not affected me. There's a new phrase that's being said. Everybody's saying it. I didn't used to say it, but this person said it. The next thing I know, it's finding its way right out my mouth. There's some new thoughts about marriage. I never had them before, but all of these people are saying it. Guess what's coming out of my mouth now? Chances are good it's already happening. You are walking in the counsel you receive. You are standing with the people who counsel you. It's already happening. By the time you and I hear this kind of sermon and we're working our way through this psalm, you might fight it and resist it, but it's the mistake that every generation makes. I can imbibe the information, but it won't affect me. It probably already has. The third posture is he becomes one of them. That is the walking and standing and sitting. It's a progression of fixed position, but not this man. This man is blessed because he does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly or wicked. He does not stand and keep company with them in the way of sinners, and he does not sit in the seat of the scornful. This idea of sitting in the seat is the completion of the progress. It began with listening to the counsel. And just like one walking and listening, he catches your ear, next thing you know, you're standing. And pretty soon when it moves you sufficiently, you find yourself sitting. Well, it's complete. Now you're actually and have become one of them. This is what happens so often to our young people right under our noses. Parents lament very often that we are losing our children. That's what we say. That's the kind of language we use. We're losing our children. And we grow concerned about that, and typically that starts with the idea of going off to college. They're going to leave the nest, and for the first time, they're going to go off by themselves. And, and, and then we, we say, well, we're just losing so many of our children. What can the church do? What can the, the parents do? Here's what happens and what many people fail to realize. Young people are not lost when they go off to college. That's simply when it's realized. This young person was lost at home before graduation. They were lost right there in the home. It was when they started walking in the counsel of the wicked. 
It's when they started listening to the information provided. All of the anti-God information. All of the live for you information. All of find pleasure and money and this is going to make, they started listening to that. They started walking in the counsel of the ungodly right in the house. And then they started standing and kept company with them. Who's your favorite person? Who's your go-to person? Who's the one that tells you the information? Whose words are you hanging on? They start standing with them. Oh, no, they couldn't exactly express it yet because they're still at home. After a while, church became more of a chore than a joy, a struggle, a fight, some resistance, some difficulty, words and things being used, situations being found out. And then they go off to college. Well, now it'll be realized. But they started walking in the council. Now, a year or two after college, they've become a mocker and a scoffer. I used to believe in God. I used to believe the Bible. I don't do that anymore. Well, that's exactly what happened. You know there's no happiness in mocking our maker. This man is happy, verse number one. Why? He simply refuses to walk in their counsel, to stand in their company, and to become a mocker of God. Won't do it. There's a guard over his heart. But he's also happy because of what's next. In not choosing that, he's chosen something else. And so verse 2 says this, but in contrast to everything that's in verse 1, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. I don't know how reading the Bible exactly has been positioned as a burden and a blight and a difficulty and, and, and something to, to be a laborious worked through, but somehow we've done it. Maybe it's preachers like me, I don't know. Somehow the message of reading the Bible has not been associated with the word delight, but it is for this man. In his law doth he meditate day and night. His delight, here's the reason. Because to him, it's not just words on the page. To delight in God's word is to delight in God. Because his word can't be separated from him. 2 Timothy 3.16, we read it all the time. The Bible says all Scripture is breathed out by God. Without God, there's no Scripture. It is expressly because it's God's Word that makes it delightful. It's expressly because it's His mind revealed that makes it delightful. As the deer pants after water, so my soul longs after, not your Word, my soul longs after you. I'm not sure how it became to be communicated that reading the Bible was some laborious task and difficult burden to bear. And if you don't do that, somehow you, you're going to be punished by God. What if God was the counselor? What if God was the guide on the path of life? What if you came to the fork in the road and met God and God said, it's this way. Would you delight in him? This man is happy because this is not laborious. 
This is not a burden to be borne. This is not a T to be crossed and an I to be doubted. This is the delight of the one who gave it. Proverbs 2, 6, the Bible says that wisdom comes from God. Out of his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Let me ask you this. When you and I have these individuals in verse 1, these people that give us this counsel, wouldn't you love to meet one of them if that's your thing? Hey, if I could just get an audience with. And here you get an audience with God. No, this man gets it. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. The idea of meditation here is the idea of ruminating. It literally means to chew the cud. He, he reads it, he delights in it, he rejoices in it, he learns it, and then it's his meditation all the day and all the night. He brings it back up again in his mind, and he rechews it like the, the, the cow or, or, or like the camel. He rechews what he's read and what he's thought about and what he's learned, and he meditates on it day and night. Now, why would that make one happy? You wouldn't need to look any further than Philippians 4, verses 7 through 9. What will you find in God's book if you just keep chewing on it? What sort of things are good? What sort of things are lovely? What would you find in it? You'll hear God saying things like, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. You'll read things like he crowned you with glory and honor. You know, one of the things that we lament so often in our society is low self-esteem and how lowly we think of ourselves. And here you would find God saying, I crowned you with glory and honor. Here you find God saying, I think you're worth the whole world, Matthew 16, 26. Here you'll find God saying, I saved the children of Israel and I'll save you. And Jesus is on the cross. And that's what you— if you just meditated on him day and night, your mind would be full of good things. You know what? You'd be happy. That's what this man is. He spends his time thinking with God and about God and chewing on God's word over and over. It is his delight. Verse number three, he is happy. In fact, the results of verse number three are obvious and predictable. He will be like... He will be like. What's this man like? He's like a tree planted by the rivers of water. What will happen to this man? His fruit will bring forth in his season, and his leaf will not wither, and whatever he does will prosper. He's like a tree planted by the rivers of water. The results are predictable. When we plant trees, we do several things. We clear the land, cultivate the soil, we dig a hole. We do all of this purposing and planning, and we prepare it. That's the way this man is. He's like that. He's blessed as a result of the planting in his life. He's like a tree planted, not just planted, but the location of the plant is so critical. He's by the rivers of water. This is a tree that will absolutely be sustained perpetually. That's this man. Everything in life that happens to this man will happen. The seasons changes for trees like that too. This is a man, though, that's planted by the rivers of water. He's like a tree. The beginning of the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's this man. He's made preparation for his life by rejecting the counsel of the wicked and by delighting in the law of the Lord. And that choice has made him like a tree planted by the rivers of water. 
For his soul, the Scriptures is the living water. The rivers will sustain that tree, and the Word of God will sustain his soul. It will nourish it. He will grow. It will blossom just like living water, Jesus said. What will happen to this man? His fruit will yield in his season. It's the expectation of a tree planted by the rivers of water. We would think that such a tree would blossom, and he will. And so does this man. He lives his life based on the instruction he received from God. You know, the God who made the world, the God who made man, the God who came here as man, the God who gave his word to man. He follows that. And as a result of that, he's going to prosper. It's the expectation of his life. His leaf will not wither. Whatsoever he do, it will prosper. The comparison is made between the man and the tree. He's like a tree planted by rivers of water. What happens to trees planted by the rivers of water? The same thing that happens to every other tree. They give way to the seasons. The leaves on the tree first change, beautiful fall colors, and then orange and red, and then they fall off in winter. And that's what happens. The ice freezes over, the water freezes over, becomes ice. Well, that's exactly— the point here is not that this man suddenly becomes Midas and everything he touches becomes gold. It's just the opposite. The thought actually then is just like the Lord said. What happens in life to this tree will happen to every other tree. The difference is this man is planted by the rivers of water like the man who built his house upon the rock. The rains fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat upon the house. Same thing here. The man who is blessed, he will prosper. He will, his leaf will not fail. He will go forward. Life will happen, yes, but he'll weather the storms, and he will come back again and again and again. His leaf simply will not fail, planted by the rivers of water. I'd written a sermon, and we were talking online the other day to a preacher, he told me that he was about to be 70 years old, and it surprised me because I thought he was younger. And then he started talking about his life, and as he talked and shared his, what he was saying, I just thought, wow, that really fits this verse, and it sounded something like this. He said, I'm about to be 70 years old, but I'm just thankful to God that most of my life I've been a preacher and I've been a Christian for the majority of my life. And then he started saying things like, you know, I'm just thankful that God has allowed me to watch my children grow up, and my children are both faithful. And then he said, I'm very thankful that they have married faithful Christians. I'm very thankful to have lived long enough to see their children grow up. My grandchildren, I've seen them grow up. Some of them are now married. And he says, I've been around long enough now, praise God, to, to see my great-grandchildren. You know, that's a whole life of seasons that simply does not fail. Did this man encounter hardship and difficulty? Absolutely. But that is exactly the picture being painted. There is a source of sustaining joy in God that cannot be found outside of him. You can go that other path if you like, but you're not going to find this. We sow in spring, and we reap in fall and winter. We're going to keep living, but what are we going to reap when we get to be 60 and 70 years old? The counsel that we followed in our 20s will bear fruit later in life. This man, this man's going to be happy. His leaf will not wither, and whatsoever he does will prosper. Now, if we stop right there, that would simply tell you where happiness is. But God doesn't stop there. Because God wants us to understand that there is no happiness. This, what's being described, cannot be found otherwise. 
Verse number four simply opens with the words, the wicked are not so. It is to tell us that those first three verses, the wicked will never have. The wicked are not so. If you walk in the counsel of the ungodly or wicked, if you sit in the seat of the scornful, if you are a scoffer of God, if you don't delight in his law, if you don't meditate in it day and night, you cannot have what God offers here. You can't have lasting joy. You can't have meaning and fulfillment. You can't have it. It's not like you can get it later. No, the reality is you can't have it. God sums it up with this simple statement, the wicked are not so, and they're never going to be. The man who rejects the counsel of the ungodly refuses to walk in their way. This man doesn't do that. In fact, he is the wicked who gives the counsel. Notice the difference between verse number three, the tree planted by the rivers, and the wicked in verse four. The blessed man is like a tree firmly planted by the rivers of life. In contrast, the wicked are not so, but they are like the chaff which the wind drives away. There is nothing stable here. There's no substance. There's no stability. There's no security. They have no staying power. There is no anchor. They move from thing to thing and very lightly. They look, but they can never find it. They're Solomon on that search, and they keep looking for it, but they can never grab hold of it. The blessed man is firmly fixed with a perpetual supply of water. The wicked man is like the chaff. They put it in the sieve and they shake it and the chaff falls out, the wheat stays, and the simple wind passes and away it goes. That's the state of the wicked. Sounds very much like our world. It's one of the reasons we keep jumping from thing to thing to thing to thing. You haven't noticed nothing seems to last very long. Where are all those challenges now? Where are all the things of two years ago, three years ago, four years ago? We never have to look far because they never last. There'll be another round, though. There'll be another round. Like the wind, the chaff will just go away. That's the wicked. Back to Matthew 7, 24 to 28, there's a foolish man there built his house upon the sand. That's this man, same man. It's foolish. The blessed man. Somebody will say, well, Eric, you know, you, the wicked here, I'm not wicked. I I want you to understand that the contrast is not necessarily that you and I are out here doing immoral things. Obviously, that's wicked. But that's not really the contrast in the verses. The contrast is in the blessed man, verses 2 and verse number 3. He delights in the law of the Lord. He will not walk in the counsel of the ungodly or the wicked. If you have your Bibles, look at Psalm 10 and notice what it says about the wicked. And for the record, it's the same word. The same word wicked in Psalm 1 is the same word wicked in verse 10 and Psalm 10, and it gives us more insight into the mind and heart of the wicked. Why are they this way? It's not necessarily because they're out here doing immoral things. It's more than that. Verse number 3 of Psalm 10 says, For the wicked boast of his heart's desire, and the greedy man curses and spurns the Lord. The wicked in the audience of his counsel does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. 
verse number 11, he says, he says to himself, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see. Verse number 13, why has the wicked spurned God? He has said to himself, you will not require it. What the Scripture's position is, Matthew 12, 30, he that is not with me is against me. If you walk in their counsel, they're telling you, I don't believe God. If you follow their instructions, they're telling you, I don't heed him. And so you become one of them by not choosing verse 2 and verse 3, which is why you can never find happiness. Again, maybe it gets into our minds the way the world does this wonderful presentation of its wickedness is to make it so friendly and non-offensive as to make it seem like a light thing. Ask yourself this, the people you follow, the people you listen to, the people that you follow after, what's their position on Jehovah? Do they ever tell you? What's their position on eternity? What's their position on Scripture? And they would make it abundantly clear, I don't listen to God, but I'm glad you listen to me. I don't follow God, but I'm glad you follow me. Oh, I don't walk in his ways or listen to his counsel. Oh, friends, you can't, you can't find happiness. The wicked are not so. They're like the chaff. You will just keep being driven to and fro and tossed about like the wind. Verse number five says, therefore, by way of conclusion again, the way verse three concludes, there is a conclusion to his life too. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. There is no happiness in wickedness. There is no substance. There's nothing that endures in ungodliness. You are left to become your own strength, your own source of knowledge. You become your own authority and moral compass. And so, where will you find happiness? You will be left to the same thing Solomon was left with. You will be left with pleasure and power and money and prestige. And here's again the mistake that every generation believes. They believe this time it's going to work. Yeah, I know what Solomon said, but if I just had the money, I know what Solomon said, but if I just had 700 wives and 300 concubines. I know what Solomon said, but if I just had the wisdom. I know what Solomon said, but see, Solomon didn't do it right, as if there's a right to this. Every generation comes and believes, and God stands at the crossroads and says, it's this way. And so we ask, do you believe God? Here is maybe the most alarming thing is that all of that rejection to God and of God and all of these choices that the wicked make, eventually they'll come right back to God. Verse number six, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The Lord knows. It should provide comfort to his children. What happens if you choose God's way? The Lord knows. Comfort to his children. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. How does this end? Maybe you should read Hebrews 11 again. We're studying that on Wednesday nights. What happened to all of those faithful people with all of their challenges and struggles from the wicked? What happened to all these people? Verse 13 of that chapter said, these all died in faith. What will happen to you if you choose the blessed man's approach to life? What will happen to you? The Lord knows. 
the outcome is certain. He that sows to the Spirit shall love the Spirit, reap everlasting life. But wait, you don't have to wait that long because Jesus said, I have come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Your life will get better right now, not tomorrow, not next week. It'll get better today if you follow God's way. If you delight in his law, what if you could imagine in your heart that every time you open the Bible, I'm talking to God and letting God talk to me. You know, reading the Bible wouldn't be a chore. It wouldn't be a burden. It would be the blessing of life to hear God talk. It would be the, the hope of life to let God tell me which way to go. Oh, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not telling you God's going to tell you which job to choose. I'm telling you God's going to tell you how to behave when you get the job. I'm telling you, if you want to be a good parent, you'll want to get here and delight in this. You want to have a good marriage, I'm telling you, you want to get here. You know what you'll be? You'll be happy. You'll be blessed. And you'll be that everywhere you go, no matter what happens in your life. The very God they reject is the very God that will judge them. Please note how this psalm ends. The way of the wicked will perish. It's not as if God is saying, they're not doing it my way, but eventually it's going to be okay. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, if you don't do it my way, you're going to perish. In fact, the Bible says the way of the transgressor is hard. It's going to be hard in this life, and then you're going to lose your soul eternally. The very God you reject is the very God who will judge you. You want to be happy? Can you imagine two piles? And God says, pick this one. Can you imagine two roads and God saying, go this way? Imagine two counselors and God saying, let me tell you how to be happy, how to wake up that way every day of your life, no matter what the world does and no matter what happens in your life. Friends, understand this. That's really only one choice. Because to fail to choose that is to assign yourself to misery now and damnation later. The way of the wicked will perish. Now, the Christian this evening become one. Believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. We ask so you can think about it. Do you believe the Bible? Do you believe God? Give your life to him tonight. Every person wants it. It's amazing that God has made it so clear. Here's how you can have it. Believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Confess his name. Be immersed in water. And let God through Jesus save you. Amen. Young people, I beg you. I beg you. I beg you. I beg you. Listen to God right now. Remember your creator in the days of your youth so that you can live this life all the way through. Don't spend time with the wicked. It will fail. If we can help you in any way, we implore you to come make things right with God as we stand and as we sing.